Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is the future of the future with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to transform industries. And importantly, they'll discuss how these technologies and strategies can shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, oh, you know you're in the right place. Come on. We have 23 different series. We've been doing this for four years, and we are welcoming our listeners from all around the world here on the Future of the Future with Game Changers Radio, presented by SAP on the Business Channel. Today, let me see what we're talking about. Well, I'm thinking back to 1974 to a Stevie Wonder song, I'm not going to sing it, but think about living for the city. Come on, this really good beat, this really good city sound. Okay, now let's talk about today. Newsflash, by 2050, not that far in the future, it is estimated that 75% of the world's population will live in cities. That's right, 75%. I don't know what's going to happen to all the green areas, what's going to happen to all the parks, but 75% will live in cities, and this is an estimate from UNICEF.org. You can look it up. What is the impact? Well, think about it. Cities need to be aware that growth at this speed, it's unprecedented. It will bring challenges. They need to have transportation. They need to control pollution. They need to supply water and energy. They need to look out for safety as well as for growth opportunities. Okay, it's demanding. It's coming. It's not that far in the future. How can cities keep up with this change, keep ahead of the demand? Well, savvy city leaders around the world are turning to new solutions, including public and private partnerships, data exchanges, and the magic word we're going to be talking about today, the phrase, the IoT, the Internet of Things, to help them lay the foundation for safer, smarter, more efficient communities. We have so much to discuss today. Very exciting topic and wonderful panel. First up, let me just tell you who our panelists are, and then I will introduce them. First up, we're going to be speaking with Sarah Gardner, the CTO for the Hatton. Tachi Insight Group. We're going to also be joined by Ruth B. Yesner-Clark. She spells Clark with a knee on the end, who founded the Smart Cities Research Program at IDC in 2011 and serves as its Global Research Director. And rounding out our panel today is Marlon Zelkowitz, who leads the SAP Future Cities team in North America. So let's get started. First up, I'm pleased to welcome Sarah Gardner. Sarah has sent me a quote from Robert. I'm going to pronounce his name Caillou, C-A-I-L-L-I-A-U. That's my best French. He's a Belgian informatics engineer and computer scientist, most important to our listeners, he helped Tim Berners-Lee develop the World Wide Web and organized the first international World Wide Web conference at CERN, C-E-R-N, in 1994. In 1995, Caillou started the Web for Schools project with the European Commission, introducing the web as a resource for education, and the rest is history. Here is the quote Sarah has selected for us today. <coughs> Excuse me. When we have all data online, it will be great for humanity. It is a prerequisite to solving many problems that humankind faces. Sarah Gardner, welcome to Game Changers. How are you, Sarah? I'm very well, thank you. How are you, buddy? I'm well, thank you. Did I uh, pronounce Robert Caillou's name? How do you say it? It's a complicated name with a lot of vowels. You know, (laughs) 
Yeah, I think it's a Belgian name. I, I, I was pronouncing it Caillou, too. So um, let, let's hope that we didn't massacre it. Close enough. Thank you. So are you a fan of this gentleman's uh, way back when he was one of the proponents, the founders, the, the game changers, Sarah, who came up with the idea for the World Wide Web? And how does this wonderful quote you selected relate to our topic of smart, safer cities and communities? Sure. Well, let me let, let me let me talk a little bit first of all about why I picked that um, uh, that quote. I mean, for me, data is really at the heart of um, everything that we need to do in in terms of um, improving um, our our cities. And I, I've been passionate about data pretty much for um, the whole of my career because I spent the whole of my career in data. And initially, uh, and this goes back thirty years. I'm embarrassed to to admit, but initially it was focused more on corporate and business data. But I think now, um, when we look at the Internet of Things and and how we have the ability to uh, pretty much instrument and gather data from all manner of different um, types of uh, data sources, physical things, cars, buildings, um, you name it. Now I think we're in a position where data and the world of analytics gets A, a lot more exciting, and B, it enables us to start to tackle not just corporate business problems, but really uh, real-world problems, these big societal problems that the quote that you started off with there about um, 75% of people living in cities. I mean, that's going to create huge amounts of uh, problems with uh, traffic and the infrastructure and, and really the Internet of Things and the ability to uh, capture all that data, to use that data, not just to analyze and monitor what's going on within the city, but also to use it to predict where the problems are going to occur so that uh, we can be more preemptive. Uh, d- data really, for, for me, is at the heart of how we're going to address uh, a lot of these big problems that we have in the future. And thanks to Internet of Things, everything now is effectively a data creator. Hmm. Absolutely true. Do you think people realize, Sarah, as they gravitate towards cities, and and this show is not going to be about why so many people are going to be moving to cities or why cities will be created around groups of people. Maybe these will be a lot of new cities we've never even heard of. Wow. Talk about the map creator's job coming up. Uh, but, but I guess my question is, do you think people realize that this thing, the Internet of Things, censors the idea that, quote-unquote, we're all connected, will be the infrastructure, the underlying fabric that makes our lives hum and makes the cities stay alive, basically? Do you think they realize that the technology is here and we cannot walk away from it anymore? Any thoughts on that? Um, I, I mean, I think for, for a lot of people, they, they, they probably won't even think about the fact that there's all this data um, flying around, being captured and analyzed in order to d- deliver the types of services that, that they have. I mean, you could argue in a lot of ways things like Uber, for example, um, mm-hmm. is, uh, is related to the Internet of Things. But I, I doubt people really think about that when they're jumping into their Uber vehicle. It's more a case of it's just a very uh, convenient way for them to get from, uh, from A to B. So... I think for, for us technologists and for data heads and geeks uh, and vendors that are actually uh, working on um, changing the world using IoT, then absolutely is top of mind for us. But, uh, but yeah, probably for a lot of the people out there that will be consuming these services, uh, probably not. 
Okay, thank you very much for your thoughtful answer to my very, very unusual question, I'm sure. Uh, Sarah Gardner, again, welcome to the show. Now let me bring on our second panelist. She is Ruth B., what a beautiful name, R-U-T-H-B-E-A, Gessner Clark. She founded the Smart Cities Research Program, as I mentioned, at IDC back in 2011 and serves as its global research director. Ruth B. has sent us a quote from D. Hock. Now, I had never heard of D. Hock. It's a man. He is a man, born in 1929, and... And you may not know his name as a household name, but he is the founder and former CEO of the Visa Credit Card Association. Let me just read a drop here, if you don't mind, Ruth B. from Wikipedia. Fascinating man. In 1968, D. Hawk was an official of a local bank in Washington State that was franchised by the Bank of America to issue its credit card brand, Bank AmeriCard. Through a series of unlikely accidents, I love that word, Hawk helped invent and became the chief executive of the credit system that became Visa International. He later resigned and he spent 10 years in isolation, working on a 200-acre parcel of land on the Pacific coast. And he later gave this speech he described. Let's see, he gave a dinner speech in 1993 at the Santa Fe Institute, where based on his experiences founding and operating Visa International, here's where the kicker, he describes systems that are both chaotic and ordered, and used for the first time the new term, Chaord, C-H-A-O-R-D, and chaotic, a portmanteau combining the words chaos and order. I'm just going to stop there. Here's the quote Ruth B. has selected for us today from D. Hock. Substance is enduring. Form is ephemeral. Ruth B. Yesner-Clark, welcome to Game Changers. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Love the quote and the reference. And this was a very, very interesting guy. He just uh, had a lot to say. So talk to me. How did you pick the quote? And how is substance is enduring form is ephemeral relating to our topic of smart and safer cities? Ruth B.? Yes. So I actually saw D. Hawk come and speak um, when I was working as an intern at a social venture philanthropy firm. And he really struck me. He came and he held up a Visa card and he said, you know, where's this company headquartered? Everybody knows Visa. It's internationally recognized. Who's the CEO? Where's the Visa company? And he basically walked us through this idea of a chaotic organization, which is that Visa itself doesn't have a company. It's a network of banks, right? It's an association. And all these banks function independently. Um, They have their own rewards cards and interest rates, but they all have a common structure in that they are visas internationally recognized. You can go into almost every single taxi cab restaurant and, you know, a store and pay for something with a visa card. And so this idea of, he said, you know, visa is an example of a chaotic organization, which you've described, which brings together the chaos of all these independent banks under some sort of common governance, common vision, ordered structure. Um, and he gave a few other examples, and I'll, I'll tell you why I picked the quote, but just, just, mm-hmm. to, just to talk a little bit, he gave another example, which was of terrorist organizations. Mm. Um, and he said they have these cells, right? They operate independent of each other. They often have no knowledge of each other. They are guided by a common mission, and they are independent to carry out that mission. And they tend to do it very effectively within this chaotic type of organization. So when I thought of smart cities, smart cities is something that I really think of as 
potentially really val- being a chaotic type of organization. So in 2012, I think I talked about cities as systems of systems, and this sort of builds and provides more depth on that idea, right? Having a clear common purpose of the city, having departments that function and operate semi-autonomously but effective towards an identified brand or common policy of a city, um, and what, what might be the structure of a city that would make it a really effective chaotic organization, like a visa, um, for example. So that's one of the reasons why I picked the quote, because I just really love DeHock's whole philosophy around chaotic organizations. But more specifically, when I thought of the quote um, and thinking about substance as enduring and form as, you know, non-enduring, basically, um, it goes a little bit to what Sarah was saying um, when I thought about data in cities. So it doesn't really matter what the form the data is in, right? We have so many types of data now, structured data and databases, unstructured and video, tweets, where they come from, the devices, the people, the applications. The form no longer can really be that important to us. It can't matter the same way. And it matters, of course, very, very much in terms of how we extract the data and how we set up our, our um, IT systems. But the point of it is to extract and make meaning from the data, and that's the substance. And I think there was one more application where we can look at it um, in terms of urban mobility and transportation. It doesn't matter what the form of transport is. If the car is owned, if it's shared, if you have a bike, if it's autonomous, if you're taking a bus, the point of smart cities is how we allow people to get around most quickly and sustainably and how we do that. And so the form doesn't necessarily matter. It's the mm-hmm. substance of, you know, how you, you achieve your goals of the city and how you, how you use all these different systems to do that. Thank you, Ruth B. Very interesting intro- introduction, and the quote obviously is very appropriate, especially in this age of uh, the sharing economy, and mm-hmm. so many people are wondering, how will I get from point A to point B, and will there be a, a car there for me, and what will I have to do to rent it or borrow it? Do I need to own it? Driverless cars, so much is happening in the field of transportation. Very good examples. Thank you very, very much. And now let's bring on our third panelist. She is Marlon Zelkowitz. You may be tempted to call her Marilyn, but that's that's not it. The I is not there. It's M-A-R-L-Y-N. She leads the SAP Future Cities team in North America. And Marlon has reached way back into literature from the 1800s for her quote today. She has selected a quote from Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. Let me just read a drop here. Sense and Sensibility, a novel by Jane Austen, was her first published work when it appeared in 1811 under the pseudonym a Lady, a work of romantic fiction, better known as a comedy of manners. Oh, I like that. Sense and Sensibility is set in southwest England, London, and Kent between 1792 and 1797. It portrays the life and loves of the Dashwood sisters, Eleanor and Marianne, following them to their new home, a meager cottage on a distant relative's property where they experience love, romance, and heartbreak. Oh, I just love this. I think we should all just take a break and go read Sense and Sensibility again. Here's the quote Marlon has selected. It isn't what we say or think that defines us, but what we do. Marlon Zelkowitz, welcome. How are you today, Marlon? Very well, thank you. How are you today? I'm fine. Thanks for joining us. I love this juxtaposition. We had a quote from D. Hawk, Mr. Visa. We had a quote from Robert Caillou, uh, the the founder, a co-founder of the World Wide Web, and now we're reaching back into romantic literature history. Are you a big fan of Jane Austen, Marlon? Uh, of course. 
I am. But I think Jane Austen continues to be relevant today. And in making Jane Austen relevant, if you look at what she says and what she comments on here, she's saying we don't just want to talk about what's happening, whether that's in cities or society. We want to actually drive different kinds of outcomes that make meaningful differences for people. And so when I'm listening to the, our other speakers, I was listening to Sarah and Ruthie talk about the importance of data and all the different kinds of data that may be out there and people may not even be aware of it. It's not really that there's data. It's what are we doing with it? What does that mean? It means that we have a new form of car sharing um, that allows you to not have to own a car but just use it and pay for it as you use it, whether that's with Uber, Lyft, or Cartigo or some other service. It means that we have... Um, lots of opportunities to put together uh, different kinds of public-private partnerships to accomplish really important things for cities. You know, with increased influx of people into cities, with all sorts of different kinds of needs to continue to invest and have cities grow and meet those demands, whether it's around transportation, which is a really important topic today, or whether we're talking about public safety and security there's a lot that needs to happen and modernize in cities, particularly in cities in North America where the infrastructure is aging. And the, at, with the growth of the cities, how are we going to smartify those? And how are we going to be able to bring the, bring those, make those investments, bring those pieces of, uh, of the city together and make a difference for the people and the businesses and everyone who is using and visiting those cities. So I think it's uh, it's really important, and I, I think this gets to the comments that Ruth B. made about chaotic systems where you have independent groups um, who are guided by a common goal. The common goal may be to have a more livable, sustainable city, but how do we bring those different organizations together? And, oh, by the way, it's not just the tourism agency in the city. It could be a county that's also an important entity that is managing the city, or it could be state organizations. When you're talking about, let's say, um, water management systems, the state, the city, the county could all have a role, and all of that could play an important part, for example, in monitoring the water flow and trying to minimize the effect of heavy rainfall, which I happen to be in Texas today, and it's been a constant battle for the many of the larger cities here to keep their citizens safe and you know avoid and mitigate the risks of loss of life and property from the heavy rainfalls. But there are things you can do, monitoring the water flow and trying to better manage the better manage the um, alerts to citizens and warn them to stay out of certain roads roadways because they're flooded and doing that in a much more proactive way using sensors that provide the data. So I'm I'm thinking that uh, it really is about not just what we say that or think, but what we do. How do we drive those important changes that make a difference for people? Thank you, Marla. And what do you think Jane Austen would say if she knew you were bringing back a quote from Sense and Sensibility here in the year 2016 on a radio show that's heard all over the world on the Internet with no wires and no box? What do you think she'd say? I think she'd be delighted. I do, too. <laughs> I think she'd say, wow, bring it on. You mean there's a hashtag for me? You mean there's a handle for me on Twitter? Wow, talk about sense and sensibility. I think she would be very much in the flow of things. I think she'd be very excited in, in any kind of romantic literary way. I think she'd embrace it. Thank you very much, Marlon. Great introductions from our three panelists. Now we want to get to know each of our three ladies a little bit better, so it's time for our segment called What's in your cup today? What are you drinking? So, Sarah, 
Gardner. I'm going to ask, where are you calling from and what are you drinking right now? If it's interesting and if not, what are you planning to drink later today? Talk to us, Sarah. Sure. Well, I'm actually calling in from home. He is... uh is um, uh, San Carlos in California. Uh, I was drinking a latte, but unfortunately it's, uh, it's empty now, so um, I will be planning on starting uh, a second latte and taking that with me in the car uh, when, we, uh, when we finish this segment. And tell us about that latte. Uh, is a particular flavor of the coffee in it? Do you have a particular brand you like? Uh, what kind of milk do you use in it? A little, little bit more. We'd like to know your recipe, Sara. All my secrets coming out. Well, first of all, it's coffee-flavored <laughs> because I, um, I don't believe in any novelty flavors in coffee at all. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's coffee-flavored. Um, it's actually, uh, I made it quickly this morning, so rather than using my, uh, my full-on uh, espresso maker, I actually cheated and used the Nespresso machine, and it's uh, fat-free milk. Thank you very much. Very interesting. Sorry to pry that out of you. Appreciate that. I have an espresso too, <laughs> I and have I have no secrets clearly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we know everything about Sarah now. We're very happy. Ruth B. Esther Clark, where are you, and what are you drinking or planning to drink? Ruth B. I am calling from Austin, Texas. We are having there is a Smart Cities Innovation Summit here this week, and so I'm I'm here at the conference and um, sitting in my hotel room waiting to get ready and head on over to the Expo Center after this, after this segment. What are you going to be drinking tonight to celebrate such a full day? Well, I'll tell you what I would love to be drinking later tonight, yeah. and then I'll tell you what I'm actually drinking right now, which is the complete <laughs> opposite. <laughs> what I really am looking forward to drinking tonight, though I really love a dirty gin martini, I think I'm in Texas, and I need to go with a really excellent margarita later. And actually what I'm drinking right now is an iced water. And um, I think it's actually pretty appropriate in terms of my personality where um, I'm an extrovert. I'm pretty friendly on the outside, but I really geek out and I'm very serious on the inside. So actually when I look at my ice water, I think it says a ton about me and about about the world actually. And Sarah will appreciate this, the fact that it has ice in it automatically means I'm not European because Americans put tons of ice in their water, so you know right away that I'm, I'm not British or French, maybe. Um, and, of course, when I look at the water, um, and I think Marlon mentioned this over and over, I just can't help of thinking about a million really important things related to city, uh, cities around water, water scarcity, recycling, Yep, you know, developing countries. So I really um, oftentimes have a moment of appreciation for for my life as it is um, when I'm able to open the tap and pour myself some water and put some ice in it. I think it's a luxury, that's a actually. Very appropriate reflection. Thank you. I think we all should. They talk about having gratitude every day, Ruth B. And I think that's a mm-hmm. very easy place to start is when you turn on that tap. By the way, I found a recipe for a, a dirty gin martini. May I read this just quickly for you? Yes. Sure. Shake, don't stir. After mixing the gin and olive juice, Carlson Thai fills the shaker three-quarters full with ice, then gives a fevered 28-second shake. The vigorous <laughs> shake is standard for mixed drinks and relevant in this case because you want the gin and olive juice to meld, pour into an ice-chilled glass. Dirty martini, how to get it right. <laughs> <Did you> <laughs> 
I love the fever, the fever shaking. That's I important. did too. I did too. A fever 28 seconds, exactly 28 seconds. We'll put the timer on and see how it all turns out. Thank you, Ruth B. And Marlon Zelkowitz, where are you calling from and what are you drinking or thinking about drinking? Uh, well, I, like Ruth B., am in Austin, Texas at the Smart Cities Innovation Summit, and I'm looking forward to meeting Ruth B. in person later today. And this morning, I did get up early and went downstairs and found myself a cup of organic breakfast tea, which I'm drinking with milk and sugar. Actually, I had to reconstitute the milk because there was only skim milk and half and half, so I Ooh. poured a little bit of both and reconstituted mm. milk from that. And, uh, yes, it's, uh, it's quite a warm day here in Texas. I'll probably be shifting to iced tea very soon. Thank you very much. That sounds good. I like the reconstituting. A neighbor of mine once told me he purposely bought skim milk and cream and had his own recipe for reconstituting. For some reason, he thought it was healthier than buying full milk or 1%, whatever it was, and he swore by it. I didn't bother to listen to that recipe, but here we are. And ladies, I am drinking cool, clear water in a cool, clear glass with a green straw because, I don't know, let's just say green for the green fields that may be disappearing when we all move into cities, what will be left. So my green straw is for hopeful that we'll have green places around the world. We are talking today with Sarah Gardner, Ruth B. Yesner-Clark, and Marlon Zelkowitz. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and you're listening to The Future of the Future with Game Changers Radio. I see our sponsor of the series, uh, Brad Borkin, is online. He is tweeting and retweeting what we're saying at hashtag SAP Radio. So let's not let Brad be lonely. Everybody jump on Twitter and go to hashtag SAP Radio. I've been tweeting what my guests are saying and their opening quotes and all kinds of interesting things. So we're using hashtag Smart City, Smart Cities, IOT. We have Hitachi Insight. We have, yes, all IOT that matters. And and uh, B. Borkin is where Brad Borkin can be found. So we're going to go take a quick break, a break that refreshes. When we come back, Sarah Gardner is going to help me launch the roundtable. We have so much to talk about. Our topic today is making cities safer and smarter, the Internet of Things. You can't run. You can't hide. It's here. It's going to stay, and it's going to change our lives forever in a chaotic way. We'll re-explain that term when we come back. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. Justin out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. An unprecedented pace of change, driven by exciting technology advances like the Internet of Things, is disrupting your industry and every other industry around the globe. Your future business success will be influenced by your ability to understand and harness these innovations and many more. Mobile devices instantaneously connecting the world populations, robotics, 3D printing, and self-driving cars. The sharing economy and ubiquitous global business network Reality Check. The future is happening right now. Join us for insights from industry experts on what it all means for your business and your daily life. The Future of the Future with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit SAP.com. 
it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to the future of the future with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to the future of the future with Game Changers. Of the future is already here. We're speaking today with Sarah Gardner, Ruth B. Yesner Clark, and Marlon Zelkowitz. And we've got some interesting tweets going on here. So join us on Twitter at hashtag SAP Radio, if you will, and see what's happening. Okay, we're talking about cities, smarter, safer, more efficient, more effective. Better places to live because, according to UNICEF.org, 75% of the world's population will live in cities by 2050. Do the math. It's not that far away. I am going to now be opening the roundtable officially, even though we've really been going around on this topic for the first half hour. We're going to be introducing Sarah Gardner again. She's the Chief Technology Officer for Hitachi Insight Group. And I'm looking at the notes, Sarah, sent me before the show, and here's where we decided to start this part of the show. Sarah says... Public and private partnerships are critical to the success of smart city projects. And she goes on to explain, it's not just the financial aspect, the ability to share. Data is key as well. And I'm going to have her expand us and give us some examples. Sarah, please go ahead. Sure. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks, Bonnie. Yeah, pu- public and private um, partnerships, uh, I think actually both uh, Marlon uh, and Ruthie have already uh, mentioned this in, the, in their opening comments as, as well. Um, and in many ways, I think, if you think about it, the private data is, is really what, uh, what, what shows the pulse of the city. And I think um, uh, Ruthie was talking um, earlier about um, uh, people uh, movement, for example. So if you want to understand how uh, people, citizens are moving around and interacting with, uh, with, uh, with the city, a lot of that information is actually uh, information that is captured and held by private entities, not, not by the city themselves. So if, if you take, for example, um, a tele- telecommunications company, a telecommunications company has, uh, has cell phone data, and cell phone data, um, because it's uh, G- GPS uh, as well, uh, indicates uh, and provides us with a lot of information about how people are moving around in the city, uh, where they are, at which time of day, and uh, demographics age information, and so on. Um, and then you've got credit card companies as well. So uh, uh, credit card companies have uh, information about how people are moving around the city as well, um, where they're spending money, how much money is, is spent. And then you have the parking vendors and, and, and bus uh, operators, rail operators. All of these um, different uh, entities have different perspectives on traffic and transportation. And, and in the past, you know, these, these different entities would be using um, the data that they collect for um, really working on optimizations within, uh, within in their own specific areas. But when you start thinking about how they can combine uh, this data so that we can start looking at a combination of, well, how many people are parking in this particular area at this particular time of day and combine that with the number of people that are using uh, buses, for example, and you start to get a much broader view of, of, of what's going on. And it's a view that you couldn't get if you looked at any of those data sets in, in isolation. Um, so we're definitely seeing a, a lot of um, opportunity for uh, public 
and, and private uh, collaboration in smart cities and for sharing and combining these, uh, these data sets. Thank you, Sarah. Love to get Ruth B. Yesner-Clark's input on this. Ruth B., your thoughts, please? Yeah, so I have two. I, you know, I agree with a lot of what Sarah said, so probably the three of us are going to be in violent agreement often through the show. But <laughs> I like so, that. You know, is, that ca- is that chaotic agreement that you might, exactly. might add? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, so I, I really agree that when we look at how to maximize the benefit to cities for providing new services, for understanding how the city works, then that, that data sharing between private and public entities is going to be really important. Um, and I, but I think there's also this other aspect that maybe is my bent of how I, I think of things in cities, which has a lot to do with um, making sure that the city is at the center and gets what they need and isn't in a position of less power, right? They're, they're always looking for money and for funding. So a lot of times the motivation for them to have a public-private partnership is around accessing resources they don't have, um, getting funding from, from a company. And I think cities can, can often make the decision to go with a partnership based on who gives them the best deal. And I think it's really important to think about, um, are they going to be able to own the data from the system? Are they going to, is it going to go to another private company? You know, so thinking about how these things are structured um, so that the city isn't left in a bind, you know, and that they're making a really good decision, not just based on who's going to invest the most money in them and who's going to give them, you know, maybe the, a technology that isn't the best fit, but they're going to provide it to them for free. So I sort of um, think of it in that realm. And, and because there are so many benefits with a public-private partnership for the city in terms of getting investment, in terms of getting access to resources they just don't have, and also in terms of moving things along, you know, private companies move at a much more rapid pace, and I think that brings cities mm-hmm. along at the pace that they need to be at. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's tremendous benefit, but I, but I also think cities need to really be advised to, to go forward in a really um, strategic and thoughtful way in terms of who they're partnering with and why. Thank you, Ruth B. I want to get Marlon Zuckowitz's POV on this. Marlon, join us, please. Do we have Marlon? Yes, Ruthie, I think you're right. We have a lot of violent agreement about the importance of public-private partnerships for smart cities. And we do really need to think about maximizing the benefits. I, I do believe that there's been a, oftentimes a rush to, to engage in projects without thinking through all of the outcomes and all of the different pieces. And cities sometimes are perhaps selling themselves short uh, and giving away, as you say, a lot of the data or not keeping, not protecting the rights of the taxpayers and the citizens in that process. I think that's a risk that we need to be aware of and to take advantage of. It's not just about having the financial commitment, but it's also looking at, you know, where are we going to, what are we going to get from this? What are the expected outcomes? What can we define up front so that we are able to maximize our benefits, to quote Ruth B. here, and there is really a trade-off between the financial aspects and the outcomes that are needed for citizens. Um, the other thing I would like to, to point out, and I really, you know, I really feel that this is something that bears commenting, even though it's outside of the question of, of technology, is in a world where interest rates are in some places even negative, 
Why do we need necessarily um, to have public-private partnerships? Maybe we need some of them, but maybe there are other ways that cities could look at getting things done. And that gets into the political realm. That's not really a question about data. And it, it's a personal opinion, obviously. It's not necessarily one that, um, that is shared by, by my company. But I, I do think these are important. I think they need to be properly structured and make sure that they benefit all of the parties appropriately for the risks that are being taken and for the investments that are being made. Thank you, Marlon. I'm going to circle back to Sarah Gardner. Sarah, let's wrap this up. Anything you want to add to this violent agreement, this chaotic, chaotic collaborative point of view here between you, among you, and Ruth B. and Marlon? Any thoughts you want to add? Well, certainly, um, you could have actually have had a, a full hour's discussion probably on public mm-hmm. and private partnerships. I mean, uh, we've all got some, some, um, some, some very complementary perspectives there, I think, as well. I mean, I tend to think of most things um, in the context of data because that's, that's what I do. Um, and I think it was good to hear um, uh, Ruthie and, um, and Marlon's um, perspectives as well, looking at it more from a, um, the actual uh, role of these different uh, players and, and, uh, and, and the city. I think one thing I would say, and this may come out in um, some of our other conversations as, as well, is I did want to reinforce that when we talk about the sharing of data, you're not talking mm-hmm. about sharing personal data, it's aggregate data. It's all about patterns. It's all about um, looking at the pulse of the city from a point of view of looking at the patterns of behavior versus sharing personal data. Um, because that's, I think, um, one of those things you asked me at the start about um, um, what the average person on the street is thinking about with things like IoT. I think a lot of people are mm-hmm. worrying about the fact that we're now going to be able to track all sorts of personal information and utilize that. It's really not what it's about at all. In a lot of instances, what we're talking about here is pattern data, not individual personal data. None of it's personally identified. It just shows the pattern of behavior of a group of citizens, for example, and how they move or interact with the city. Thank you very much. Thoughtful opening to our roundtable segment. I'm now going to turn to Ruth B. Yesner-Clark. Ruth B., there's all kinds of places in your notes we can go. Let me just pick one and see if you'd like to start talking about this, and then we'll have the others join in. Uh, you made a note here that there's a connection, an important connection, between urban planning and smart city technologies. This goes to plan development, better land use, coordinating complex systems more effectively, optimizing the efficient use of resource, all kinds of great buzzwords in here. Is this a place you want to go at this point, Ruth B? I'll leave that up to you. Uh, sure, absolutely. Okay, let's do it. Yeah, you know, I was just going to make a quick comment on um, um, Sarah's last point as well, and maybe mm-hmm. this is, you know, this is a little sobering, but I think, uh, you know, even if we do have a lot of data on people, and there is a lot of data, and we, we do have systems that can track and monitor people. And, it, you know, we've seen this with this recent Orlando shooting in, in um, the nightclub here. And there was a lot of FBI information on this person. But mm-hmm. the policies and other structures that happen um, also make a huge difference. So you can have a lot of data, and that doesn't mean that you have an effective response to um, altering a person's behavior. And so on the one hand, obviously, with a dangerous person like that, um, that is one thing. But also for the regular average person who's concerned about their privacy, I think it's important to put it in that context as well. So I just wanted to make that sort of side comment about, about looking at data in the larger context of, of policy and governance. 
Thank you, Ruth B. Let me just make one comment here. Yes, and a uh, terribly sad what happened over the weekend in Orlando, but it does bring up huge questions about data ownership. I think somebody mentioned that before. Also, who gets to make the decisions about how and when that data is used, when it is kept, when it was, re- when it is released, when it becomes no longer a priority, and then we get the the, I'll use the word advised, the pleasure or the privilege of looking back in hindsight collectively as a culture, a society, a world and saying, oh my goodness, that person was on an FBI watch list who decided he should no longer be watched. So we get to look back and become the detectives and the investigators and the forensic analysts, if you will, from that comfortable armchair as we watch this unfold and say, why shoulda, woulda, coulda? Am I right on that, Ruth B.? Yeah, I, you know, that, I think that's what I'm saying. You know, we also have, the, well, I guess I was making a, somewhat of a separate point, but you're, you're absolutely right. We get the benefit of hindsight so we can see things. But my point was really just around privacy and that mm-hmm. even if there is access to data, if there's other policies in a society, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to be inhibited um, by what the government may know about them. Um, that said, we, all, we need to be very careful in terms of, how we're managing private information and who's collecting it. But I was just exactly. sort of putting it in that, that context. And, and maybe this is a good time then to switch over to sort of some public safety discussion. Yes, which sure, I know we why not? Gonna, yeah, it seems like the, um, the appropriate thing. Yeah, and this is, you know, one of the areas, and I think we can all talk about this, is um, along with transportation, when we look at public safety and security, it's really this area of transformation that's happening, especially in urban environments. Um, and especially in systems like smart cities or like ports or airports where there's so much going on, there's so many different types of people, and there's so many um, ways that are coming up that, that can monitor safety but balance that with not, you know, um, curbing people's personal freedom. So we look at that really looking at the challenges facing this law enforcement, which we've talked about, urban population growth, people getting really dense, you know, density of people really causes a lot of more traffic accidents, more interactions between people. Um, you know, how we really deal with the fact that the criminals are also very tech savvy. Um, mm-hmm. And so when we see what's happening around the connected officer who has body-worn video and could have censored holsters and, and has all sorts of devices on their body, we see a lot of opportunity and challenges there. And then there's also this sort of macro view of public safety that's happening where now we could have drones that are used for crowd control or monitoring, and, and suddenly our airspace is totally different in terms of what we can do around public safety. So I think when we talk about the future of cities, that's incredibly interesting and a, and a real area that I think people are trying to figure out and, and develop some policies around worldwide. Thank you. Let's bring in Marlon Zalkowitz. Marlon, thoughts? Um, I think that we are going to see some radical transformations and a real increase in the kinds of digital policing and, and use of technology. And we're going to begin thinking about about changing the way in which we do things, whether it's with drones or whether it's with um, whether it's with data and data mining, but it's a whole new world out there. And I, I believe that we're, you know, I, I believe that the policies and the laws and regulations haven't really kept up with the great advances in technology. And it's really causing us to um, see some, some changes in, in society and in, in the world today. And I, I say that because I, I don't want to, you know, I want to say that you can certainly analyze data and it's pretty, 
with, um, with the appropriate tools, it's not that difficult to de-anonymize data and identify people. And yet, you know, probably five or six degrees of analysis, and you can pretty much figure out. However, it does take time. It does take effort. And when, when should you do that? What are the guidelines? What's the best way to go about it and make sure that you're providing the appropriate protection and, and public safety that, that citizens need at the same time balancing the rights to privacy and, and such that citizens would expect to have? Thank you very much, Sarah Gardner. Circling around to you, thoughts on what well, we covered a couple of topics here. Anywhere you want to jump in, please go ahead. Sure. Well, let me take the public safety one in a, in a slightly different um, d- direction mm-hmm. um, to uh, the, the, the world of predictive because um, for me, again, coming back with my data perspective, um, what, what I find most interesting about, um, about IoT is the ability to not just monitor things but also to predict things. And I think on the uh, public safety side, um, there's, there's a lot of very um, interesting uh, angles here. I mean, we're not quite at the stage where we're doing the minority report, <laughs> if you've seen that movie, Bonnie. But, um, mm-hmm. but if you think about it, if, with, with public safety, there's already a lot of different um, monitoring devices that we have um, out there from, uh, from, from the equipment, the monitoring equipment, for example, that, that, uh, that the officers wear, that's in their cars, we've got surveillance cameras on the street, we've got... Sadly, in the United States, gunshot recorders are a necessity, uh, license plate recognition, and all sorts of other different uh, different um, uh, ways of tracking what's going on. But then the power, really, of, uh, of big data and being able to, to, to blend and, and, and analyze um, the greater amounts of data combined together gives us an even broader perspective, because now you can start folding in things like um, Twitter feeds, for example, social media, um, and all sorts of uh, clever linguistic analytics. I mean, it's the information that, uh, that can be derived from, from social media. It's not going to be probably a straightforward um, uh, text that's got uh, uh, key information in it, but more likely patterns of behavior on social media that uh, look, um, look, look suspicious. And, but by pulling all of this information in together, what it means is that we actually have um, a much better way, actually, of gauging all the different early warning indicators that indicate that there's going to be problems. And you can combine historic information in there as well, crimes that have happened and things that are happening, um, demographics, climate. And, but the reason I'm bringing this up is where this all starts to go is rather than just using these pieces of information to monitor what's going on in public safety, now uh, the, the, the police um, forces can actually use this information to predict. And it's not at, at the sense... Uh, as I said before, with the minority report where they can predict exactly where a crime is going to occur and who's going to commit it. But it's more a case of that they can figure out that based on what they know, what's been happening, historic information, other seeds maybe like what's going on in social media, and they can start to figure out, well, this area of the city in particular is where we suspect, you know, more, more burglaries are going to occur and because of the weather, the way it is this weekend. And, and it gives them that ability to be a lot more prudent about how they police um, and, uh, and, and, and put, uh, put, put uh, resources out on, on those streets. So I think in public safety in particular, I mean, there's so much opportunity, actually, uh, to really transform um, using IoT. And I completely, completely understand some of the perspectives that um, uh, Marlon and, and Rufi have, have, have put out about uh, some of the, uh, the, the human and uh, the policy aspects. But just 
purely thinking about it from a point of view of technology and data for a second, in many ways, I think public safety is the tip of the spear when it comes to smart cities. Because there's so much opportunity, there's already so much data out there. And also, it tends to kind of transcend um, uh, agencies. I think coming back to some of the things that Ruth B had said, sometimes, you know, in terms of getting things started uh, within, uh, within a city, well, public safety is one of those areas that kind of transcends the borders of, 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 of a specific agency. And then also, the final point, you know, for a lot of mayors, uh, public safety and um, crime reduction is an important re-election um, uh, campaign platform. So public safety for me is, is, is definitely one of the, one of the number one um, areas I think we're seeing um, activity in, in terms of smart cities. Yeah. Thank can you I, very much. A, yeah, oh, of course. Can I just make a follow-up comment to Sarah, too, because I think Please. it just occurred to me tying in exactly what she's talking about, um, the tip of the iceberg and predictive policing and tying it all back to sort of what we were talking about, about public-private partnerships. And when we look at public safety and the data and the impact it could have, what really comes to mind, too, is the, the, fat, the scale of the investment. So when you think about public safety, and she was mentioning, you know, um, gunshot detection and, and things like that, and video surveillance, you can't necessarily just do that in one neighborhood, because then the crime and the people get wise to it, and they shift to another neighborhood, right? So it's just like when we talk about parking tracking. You can't just park track parking on, on one block with, with connected devices, because, you know, people look at much broader areas of neighborhoods to look for parking. And I think that's where the challenge comes in, sort of related to what we were talking about, about public-private partnerships, in that you really have to look at the whole city. Because once you um, really do get smart and predictive and put resources in an area that you know needs it in terms of safety, a lot of that crime can shift to other places. And so how do we help cities achieve the scale that they need to really have an effective strategy that may even cross city borders, right? So it becomes a really large-scale issue, I think, when we start to think about um, how this can grow and how these investments really can impact a, 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 large, a large geographic area. And if I, can, if I might add also, um, yes. you're really onto something. You know, we may have a lot of data, um, to, set, to Zara's point about data, that we've collected already that we're not using as effectively as we could. And we may be able to glean insights from bringing together data from across different agencies within the city and try to, you know, compare that and, and affect issues such as public safety. An example I think about is, Something around um, maybe problem properties combined with information on 311 or 911 calls to emergency services, and you might see that there are certain patterns of of detection. And I know some cities have been able to pull together this information and to then go and to then target the landlords who are not maintaining their properties appropriately and to cite them to say, "Hey, you're behind. We've cited you already. You need to do something about this." The neighborhood has problems, and you're not making it any better, and you know it. You know, you need to take care of the broken windows or the whatever the, the citation was about. And they've been noticing that there is a reduction in crime in those neighborhoods as the problem properties are taken care of. So that's not necessarily requiring a significant major investment um, in new sensors, new devices, um, and such. It's just making better use of what you already have and gleaning the insights from the data by crossing departments. And, and that's always a challenge, I know, in any, in any kind of government level to bring together different departments that are not necessarily used to working together. And, and maybe that brings us back to the theme of uh, chaotic uh, information and chaotic governance that, we, that uh, 
Ruth B. had talked about earlier. Indeed it does, and we are have to put some chaotic order to this, chaotic because we are at the point where we're already well into our predictions round and we didn't start it yet. Great conversation, ladies. And by the way, I just want to bring up one point from Marlon's list that we didn't get to, Marlon. Uh, urban resilience is a key theme for smart cities. I think that's a topic for a future show. I could give you each 30 seconds maximum for a prediction, so let's quickly go to Sarah Gardner. Sarah, at what point in the future will this conversation change? 30 seconds on the dot. Go, please. Gosh, no pressure. Um, <laughs> well, I, I don't think the uh, I don't think the, uh, the the conversation changes. I think um, smart cities is, uh, is 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 something that we're still going to be discussing over the next ten twenty years. I just think that we'll see uh, a lot of progress uh, in this area. A lot of cities uh, adopting smart city technology um, over the next uh, over the next ten years, and um, ultimately with that, we should see that even though the populations are increasing in cities, uh, it's not completely unrealistic to predict that uh, some of the problems that we have today, like traffic uh, and so on, will actually, be, uh, will actually be reduced. So I think this conversation is here with us to stay for the next uh, 20 years or so. Thank you. Great prediction. Ruth B. Yesner-Clark, predictions, 30 seconds from you, please. I think uh, agree with, with Sarah, but I also think we're going to see a new wave in types of data services that come out from governments and the whole way they have their revenue structure now in the next 10 to 20 years or even sooner is going to really transform. So instead of getting a lot from parking, when we start to see more semi-autonomous vehicles, they're going to change to other types of services about transportation. Um, We're going to see new services, for example, an app that if you're in danger allows you to strobe light your smart streetlights around you and and have an immediate response from emergency services, and, and the citizens are going to pay for that type of service that they can have that connects them to the city infrastructure. So we're really going to start to see over time a transformation in the way that um, cities provide services and the types of services they provide and the revenues and, and fees and things they get from those services. Thank you, Marlon Zelkowitz. I saved time for you. And Marlon, just a quick comment. Urban resilience, you want to make that part of your prediction? Because I'd love to hear you speak on that for 30 seconds if you can. Um, so, sure. I think, uh, I think urban resilience is going to tie into these themes of, of data as we're going, to have, we're going to be using sensors and technology, Internet of Things, big data, analytics, and insight to be able to be more resilient. For example, instead of just being responding to a flood and recovering afterwards and applying for insurance resources and such, we're going to be able to say, hey, we know that this area is prone to flooding for this reason, and we're going to be able to prevent some of the damages and loss of life. I like that very much. Thanks for tying that up. Ladies, we are out of time. I want to say thank you so much to Sarah Gardner, to Ruth B. Yesner-Clark, to Marlon Zelkowitz. Shout out to Brad Borkin for putting together this extraordinary panel for our show today on the future of the future with Game Changers Radio presented by SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. We also have a shout out to everybody else who tweeted at hashtag SAP and a shout out to Justin, our engineer at the Business Channel who keeps us on the air, gets us there and keeps us there. So, With that note, I'm going to just say my resilience note is my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. It's going to be quite a ride with smart cities and the IoT coming up, as uh, Sarah Gardner said, for the next 10 to 20 years. So what are you waiting for? Are you going to do something about it? Of course you are. Go out and be a game changer today. Signing off for another live show. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to the Future of the Future with Game Changers, presented by SAP. 
The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.